0: Hi, everyone. This is David Cohen, and I'm here with my amazing co-host, Brad Feld. Hey, Brad. And this is the Give First podcast. In the startup world, Give First means simply trying to help anyone, especially entrepreneurs, without any expectation of getting anything back. So we'll be talking to mentors and founders about what Give First looks like in action and how it makes great entrepreneurship possible. We polled everyone, and they said consistently that their favorite part of the show was the legal mumbo-jumbo. So here it is. The following discussion is an expression of personal opinion and does not represent the opinion of Techstars or any company we discuss. Our conversations for informational purposes only, including any mention of securities or funds. This is not legal business investment or tax advice and is not intended for use by any investor. Certain of Techstars funds own or may own in the future securities and some of the companies discussed in this podcast. Got it? Today, I am joined by Gus Balbantin, who is coming to us. I think you're in Melbourne today, right, Gus? That's right. In Australia. We're super excited to have you on the show. Would love to talk to you a bit about what you're up to on that side of the world and and how things are going. Would love to just start with a brief uh, background. I know you started in entrepreneurship when you were pretty young, and I hear maybe there's a few stories around that, so maybe you could start there. Yeah, thanks for having me. Really excited to be here. I was about 14 years old or 13
1: years old when I put together my first business. My mom taught me how to bake a few cakes, two, actually two recipes, and she thought that I was going to help the family you know, with, with the baking, and all I could think of was how many people out there needed cakes, right? So I, every time I walked to school, I would just walk through all the shops of the main street of my town because I had to walk past the main street of my town. It wasn't a big deal. It was only like literally three, four blocks, and I would just... You know, stop in every shop and you know, and, and ask if they needed you know cake for morning tea the next day. And I took orders, and basically every afternoon I baked. Every morning I delivered two orders, and the next afternoon I would bake again. Uh, and that was my way out because when I was about eight, I had a big dream of traveling the world. I come from Patagonia, from you know down south in Latin America, and, and I grew up in a very very small place, regional town. You know, the kind of place where. Your dreams are predefined for you, the place where either society or your family has already decided that the rest of your life is going to look like this. And of course, my plans were different. So by the age of 14, if I didn't save a bit of money, I wasn't going to get out of that town. So yeah, that little business basically paid my way to my first scholarship, which uh, was partly funded, partly self uh, Back then, I landed in Australia at the age of seventeen to finish high school, and and yeah, I mean, there was a few other businesses in between. I think my first exit, I was from a little advertising agency I built at about eighteen. But yeah, that first one, the cake was my first
0: little hustle. So you know, you had multiple businesses and sold one by the time you were eighteen. So totally normal childhood sounds like. (laughs) Yeah. <laughs> sounds like you got at it early, Gus. You know, were you just born to be an entrepreneur or what do you think uh, was the influence there? I,
1: I don't know. I think partly was, it, it was kind of necessity in some ways. And sometimes these things drive us in ways that, that we don't necessarily consciously are aware. So that desire to, to travel the world. And I, and I was born, my wife diagnosed me a few years ago. And it's pretty funny, right? My wife diagnosed me with a severe case of FOMO, right? I was born with the fear of missing out. And I don't know why I had this insane desire to make sure that that nothing got away from me. I I wanted to check everything, do everything. My family tells me stories of me uh, literally falling asleep, standing or sitting down late at night as a kid because I just didn't want to miss out on the movie or the dinner or the party or the game or whatever it was. I just could not miss out, right? So, um, yeah, look, I I got a story short, but I landed in Australia at 17. Uh, I met my gorgeous wife at that age in high school. uh, I asked her to... uh, to get married with me two weeks after I met her. as a 17 year old and she obviously said no to me and I was devastated because I thought this sounds like a total deal, right? I mean, I like you. Uh, I don't know about you liking me, but you should. So therefore let's get married, right? And of course that, that took me a little while longer to actually convince him. But eventually I got myself a visa and I got you know got rid of a boyfriend and various other bits and pieces that were in between. <laughs> and I married my darling, high school love. Today we've got three kids. I live in, in Melbourne, Australia. I had an import-export company. I had a a juice franchise business in Argentina Well, I built it and then I sold two franchises, and then eventually I sold the whole thing. And I worked for Lonely Planet, which uh, was one of my dreams, being a a fanatic traveler. I ended up uh, getting a job at Lonely Planet as a young man and worked my way through from design all the way to head of innovation, all the way to executive director and running the company from Tennessee. Actually, I was living in Tennessee when I was doing that, but spending most of my time on a plane. Yeah, I had the wonderful privilege of observing, you know, a publishing I guess, media company deal with the challenges of the internet being born and disruption and change and so on. So I had the most incredible ride working with some incredible companies and people and from Google X to Nokia. Gosh, Nokia as well. I've worked with them really closely. So, yeah, and then I guess I've always been involved in entrepreneurship and as soon as I could get involved in investing and helping others, I did immediately. So that kind of has been the last 15 years probably
0: of my life here in Melbourne. Yeah, and that's where we've run into you, obviously, with our work in, in Melbourne with the sports tech program and Tennis Australia and the partners there, Victoria University. Today, you have a lot going on. You you went away from serial entrepreneurship and now you're a parallel entrepreneur. you got several things you're working on today. You want to talk quickly about those things?
1: Yeah, look, I think it's uh, probably worth sharing because I think it, it, it really fits the name of the show, I guess, is that, you know, I find that. I'm still hedging my bets, right? I work with the university. I know the education system is struggling. The model is struggling. You know, it's not keeping up with the pace of, of how things are moving and changing. And I know my children are growing up really fast. And I don't know if they're going to end up being at a uni or, or, or they're going to end up just developing their own business and creating value in a different way. And I always say that the education system in general, primary, secondary, and tertiary education, tends to be a system focused primarily on extracting value. You know, I always believe that we want to teach our children to create value rather than extract it, right? The degree normally tells you, hey, there's this thing called the medical industry, and if you do this, you get value out of that thing, uh, rather than teaching you, here's the way you can contribute and add to it. So I find that that the other playground, the other university they could go to is is the ecosystem in which they they live. So I became very obsessed with that concept, uh, like I said, probably about 15 years ago, and and I started investing my own money, I guess, into the ecosystem and my own time and my own mentorship and experience and energy with no apparent return really at the start, just to make sure that the ecosystem was as vibrant and as healthy as I've seen other ecosystems in the world. I wanted my children to grow up in a place where if they thought, I wonder if we could do this or I'd like to fix this problem, that they could, rather, right? They could just basically reach out into the ecosystem and, and find enough people and, and I guess enough karma, enough credits that they could withdraw when they needed to, right? And... And this is Dad kind of putting credits into it in some way and teaching them how to put credits into the system too. So I think that's where it comes from. Uh, you know, today I've managed, I mean, gosh, humble portfolio of angel investing. I founded a couple of companies, very small as well, digital agencies or creative agencies, if you will, and, and an IT company, which we work with various different clients. And, and then I'm just about to launch the, the Unrealistic Foundation, which is a foundation dedicated to investing in companies that are trying to disrupt education, the education model. And I guess help humans be more unrealistic, right? I have this puzzle with education that my kids go to school and they come back and they come back chiseled and beaten down to conform, you know, to to be realistic. And I, I always tell my kids, hey, you don't need to leave anybody else's reality. You just need to be as unrealistic as you possibly can so that new realities exist, right? If you're not unrealistic, then we've got no chance of solving climate change. So yeah, yeah that's kind of a little bit of what I'm, what I'm up to at the moment. And of course, you know, involved with Textas, which uh, I was one of the partners that, that managed to, to bring you guys across, which is... Gosh, super
0: excited for Melbourne and for Australia. So very, very yeah, proud of that. Yeah, we're super excited to be there. I, I love uh, the name of, of your new effort, by the way. Um, and, I, and I love your comments on the education system, right? I think doing is so powerful. Um, it's not a board game called life, right? That, that you just learn how to play. It's much more creative than that. And I think that's certainly the future. You know, my, my co-host and my co-founder at Techstars, Brad Feld, you know, they recently released the new book, The Startup Community Way with, Ian Hathaway, who's also at Techstars. You know, you do a lot of work on the ecosystem there, which you've mentioned. we talk a little bit for those that aren't familiar with Startup Vic about how that works and, and you know where the energy is going there. Um look, Startup Vic was a, I mean, very typical
1: of, of lots of ecosystems around the world, you know, entrepreneurial or startup ecosystems. You know, it was born from a bunch of early stage entrepreneurs coming together on meetups and saying, hey, what have you learned lately, you know, and, and what is it that I need to be careful with? So it's very grassroots, right? And and as it started emerging, all of a sudden, more and more people wanted to turn up and come along and, and share. And I guess that, that was the original birth of, of stata Victoria. I have the wonderful privilege now of sitting on, on one of the board members. And I think, you know, the reason why I put my energy in there again, and, and all the other board members, by the way, there's a few of us who contribute. We do it for the same purpose, right? Now, the, the beauty about Startup Victoria is that over the last four or five years, as it evolved and, and grown, it has managed to reach further and further. So I think, you know, the reach is like something like 20,000 people or something in between the newsletters and, and the membership and the various other you know, publications they put out and, and events that they do. Uh, and if you compare that to around the world, it's actually quite a significant number and quite a healthy one. Uh, And they get an insane amount of interaction with people. I mean, I think they opened up a Slack channel in the last six months with what we're dealing with at the moment. Yeah, it's something like over 100 signups a day. It's kind of like insanity. Just People just keep pouring in. And I think partly that it's a reflection not just of Startup Victoria, but of the ecosystem and people realizing that, wow, some of these systems are breaking down. We can't extract value from them anymore. Some of these companies are breaking down. Some of these models are breaking down. And if we don't learn how to create value, how to start something, we're going to really struggle. So I think that's why they're playing a significant role in the ecosystem. That's why they're so well connected with state government and, and various other organizations and partners. Of course, there's lots of partners that support Startup Victoria that help and well, Now, of course, you are part of that now and super excited as well because it is one of the most powerful ways of helping others give as well because you know it's almost like you give first and then they give first so it's kind of
0: just passes on right yeah and that's the whole idea it's a very unexpected right and a lot of your activities are obviously very much giving back to the ecosystem right you're investing you're contributing to the ecosystem in many different ways mentoring we hear great things about your direct help to companies in that community and when you do that you don't typically get something back from whoever it is you're helping directly it comes back to you typically in a completely unexpected way. So I, I don't know if you have stories of how that's happening in Australia. I think people would be very interested to maybe hear, if anything comes to mind, about somewhere where you were helpful, where it just totally surprised you as to how that had impact down the road.
1: Let me tell you one little one. It's a little one. It's a funny one. There's not much to it, yet the impact is it's enormous, right? So probably about 10 years ago or something like that, my sister-in-law, actually, I call her my sister-in-law, because I am related to her by love, not by law, but... Anyway, my sister-in-love gives me a book, right? It says, I think this book will be something that you'll find very valuable. I think you'll tickle your, your curiosity in a way that you'll find it incredible. Uh, and the book was a, a book called The Art of Looking Sideways by uh, an amazing designer. This book is a collection of various, you know, I guess like a scrapbook of, of a life of a designer that effectively uh, over a lifetime, its curiosity drove me to collect all these various bits and pieces. And uh, that book still is one of my go to books, right? I mean, I read incessantly. I read probably a book every two or three weeks, I choose for something. Uh, and this book is something that I always have near me, and I'm always reaching out to grab it every time I get stuck in a problem, wanting to get creative, or I need to solve something, or I don't know how to help someone. I always reach out and flick through the pages, and it's kind of one of those things that you can explore. Now, here comes the story of Kid First. When that book got given to me since then, I think in the last 10 years, I would have given about probably a dozen of these books away to people. And I don't expect anything in return from it. I just basically give them away and say, look, you know, when I meet someone, I'm mentoring someone, I think this is something that is going to help you in your life. I think this is something that is going to keep you alive. And I think it's going to keep hitting your brain with novelty, which is one of my big mandates in life, I would say, you know, keep your brain fresh, keep your brain aware of novelty, otherwise it atrophies and and loses adaptability. So recently, you know, working with a a small startup in Sydney, um, the CTO kind of grew from engineering into coding and then from coding into CTO, it's struggling with the concept of being the leader of technologists, thinks that he needs to be right rather than just helping others come to a conclusion and an agreement and and solutions and, and he's struggling a little bit himself he's one of those guys that never watched television in his life because he felt that his parents told him that it was a waste of time and he thought the same. So he's never seen a movie in his life. He's never seen a show in his life. Literally, I mean, you can imagine, right? The shock for me going, what? You stab your brain of the, you know, the novelty of art. Are you, are you for real? But he was like a coder and cut through and through, right? So the first thing I did was I said to him, I'm going to shock you. I need you to watch Stranger Things. And he looked at me and he said, what is that? And I said, well, you watch it and tell me what you think. And First episode, he writes back to me, and goes, this is very scary. I don't think I can handle this, this kind of television that you're making me watch. And I said, well, it's not television, by the way, it's something else. But, you know, so we had a chat, a long chat about that. And then he finished watching Stranger Things eventually. It took like a couple of months. And every now and then we'll do a bit of a mentoring session. And then he says to me, what's next? And I said, what's next is, is you've been able to self-explore in, in a book called The Art of Looking So I'm about to send it to you. Anyway, it's out a print at the moment. It's a gorgeous book and it took me a little while to find and Eventually, I sent it to him, and the message he sent me back was so powerful. Not only he actually said, thank you, I can understand why you're asking me to look sideways, guys, because I'm a bit too narrow, but he also said, I see that this book is not cheap. Would you like me to send it back or send it on to someone else? And just the fact that he caught on to the concept just literally filled me up with, with hope of realizing, hang on, this is how it works, right? You don't even need to say it. You just demonstrate
0: the behavior, and the behavior just catches on, right? Is role modeling, exactly. And my guess is that either he or the person he passed it along to probably had some insight that you don't even know you had the impact, right? That probably changed that business or changed that community. And certainly you instigated the give first concept and they played it forward.
1: And they played it forward. It's incredible. Hey? And it's such a rewarding thing. I mean, I've, I've said, I don't the story that just popped up. I was seeing the other day, look how crazy this is, right? And talk about Sometimes it's not technology. Sometimes it's not some fancy, you know, scale up unicorn business. Sometimes it's as simple as this. I do a lot of presenting and keynotes and so on. And, and I did one of those engagements here locally, just with the local uh, Shire here in, in Melbourne c- c- Council. And um, there was someone in the audience. And of course, I must have made an impact. I didn't realize this. And about two years later, I'm standing in the supermarket waiting to buy something. And this person is, you know, lurking behind me. and I'm, And I'm looking over my shoulder, going, this is a bit. With. And she approached me and she goes, Oh my God, guys, I didn't want to interrupt you. And, and I know you're shopping and I'm so sorry, but I just wanted to say thank you. And I looked at her and said, What do you mean? And she goes, Well, two years ago when you talked and I heard you, I realized that I was doing the wrong thing and you inspired me. So I started making food at home and selling it to local cafes. And, and that grew a little bit more. And then my husband had to resign from his job and he's working with me. And then my kids also joined the business. And now we all work in the business that I built. And by the way, what you're about to buy in the deli. At the actual supermarket, we made it in our home. I'm sitting there in shock going, wow, (laughs) holy shit, this is incredible. So she started breaking down the business she's built. It's around food, and she's got all these different distributors. And, and this supermarket wasn't that small, so be able to get actually your product into that supermarket meant that she was running a significant operation. I was really impressed, and I was so touched and blessed, and I was looking at her going, oh my God, thank you so much. She's going, oh no, thank you.
0: Like, you don't understand the impact you've had in my family and in our lives. And I'm going, wow, wonderful, right? That's a great story. And it's a great feeling, right, to, to sort of feel that you have that impact. And for everyone you know about, my guess is there's 10 or 20 you don't even know about. You mentioned keynotes, a little birdie whispered in my ear and said you did like 150 of them last year. That's a lot of keynotes. Is that true? I do. About 100, 110 last year, actually. It was the year before, about another 100 or so the year
1: before that. Yeah, they're really weird. I I don't consider myself a keynote speaker. I don't call myself a keynote speaker anyway. But suddenly I can share a story and, and speak, right? And I fell into it. I, I, you know, a friend, when I finished at Lonely Planet, a friend said, can you come and talk in our company and share stories and battle scars? And I said, sure. And I happened to be an agent in the audience, who was you know, the biggest agent in Australia. Uh, the guy comes up to me and says, can I represent you? I didn't even understand what that was. And I said, sure, whatever. And he goes, look, I need to shoosh up a bit of a profile for you. And I said, okay, no worries. I remember just the struggle of that was hilarious. And then, yeah, one thing became another. And I mean, I did Gardner. In Orlando, Florida, a couple of years ago in, in the U.S., and that was an audience of 10,000 people. I was due to do Miami for Zendesk uh, in March when the pandemic hit, so it got obviously got postponed. This year I was, I was meant to go. I was spending four weeks in the U.K. doing keynotes, Norway, Dubai. Yeah, insane. It's a really weird thing, and I think I find it addictive But equally, what fills me with energy, because to be honest, the the lucrative side of it runs out very quickly when you're doing 250,000 kilometers a year on planes, right? We're talking, I don't know, 160,000 miles. That has to cost, right? And you're moving around the world. I mean, last year, I, like I said, you know, if I do about on average two keynotes a week or something, or, or a bit more sometimes, you know, this is moving around a lot. The year before I did Luxembourg, I flew to Luxembourg, did a keynote and came back. Literally, I spent like 24 hours in Luxembourg and I spend 48 hours flying or something. right? But I think I do it, I do it for exactly the same reason. They give to me the pleasure of being able to share stories and watch people's faces and get messages afterwards of the kind of, oh my God, I've just resigned and I've changed my life. Oh my God, I've just decided that the little startup that I was thinking about, I'm going to do it. Uh, Oh my God, I can't believe my children... I've been guiding them in the wrong way, or whatever it is that I've managed to to stir up in the thinking. Because uh, I always say to people, look, these are my truths. You, know, you take them with a pinch of salt. You need to make up your own life. Now I just share my battles, cause and my stories, and hopefully they mean something to you. And you know, my job is to stretch you. So some of the stuff that I say is going to make you feel uncomfortable. But I always say, suspend your disbelief and and give it a shot. So no, look, I really enjoy it. It's it's a it's a fascinating world of. Yeah, a really weird world—the world of of keynote speakers. A lot of people have called professional keynote speakers. I'm not. I don't call myself that. I guess technically I am, but it's really funny. Last year, and year before, because I did the most keynotes in a year the Association of Keynote Speakers or whatever of Australia approached me to award me and invite me to (laughs) whatever. I laughed and chucked and said, what? No, I'm not a speaker. I said, please don't. Don't even dare to give me any kind of award of any kind. I just speak. And I said to people, gosh, if only you dared to stand on the stage, I'm sure every single one of you will have a story to tell that will be valuable to all of us. It just happens that I don't get nervous on on stage. Well, I do, but I I managed to surrender to it. But that's the only difference,
0: right? But anyway. One of the things that that I I think was attributed to one of those talks that I saw that it really it resonated with me, and you know there are a lot of entrepreneurs listening. There are also a lot of other mentors like yourself that are you know running businesses around the world. But I don't know if I have the quote right, but it was something like uh, it was about momentum. Momentum is great for efficiency and cost cutting, but not for innovation. And that really resonated with me because a lot of businesses we work with have momentum. And they're just sort of running the business, maybe not looking sideways to your earlier reference. And maybe it's not the greatest thing for innovation, but elaborate on that.
1: Look, it's really interesting. I've noticed, you know, there's a lot of little lessons that I share from just watching what was happening around me and what was happening to me, right? During this time of great disruption as the internet takes off and everyone in media, right? it it wasn't just Lonely Planet, which was the company I was working with. It was, you know, from... The New York Times to book companies, to bookshops and chains. And it was actually such significant disruption that I kept observing, you know, real tangible challenges that I could see people aware about it and you know, people recognized it and, and were willing to do something. They just didn't know how to act and what to do. And I could just see them helpless. And I realized that one of the greatest impacts is this concept of momentum, right? We often associate it with a positive thing. We think momentum is fantastic. But of course, once you build too much of it, you end up in trouble because when you want to shift direction, of course you can't because that momentum is not only has a velocity, but has an actual direction. So you're pointing it in, in the direction, obviously, hopefully of the customer. But we know these days customers shift direction all the time, right? Now the challenge is that I always say that businesses are the sum of us. Right, A business always behaves as the average behavior of the people in it. So the challenge is that we build momentum ourselves as individuals. We get taught through the education system that, you know, you do this and you do that and you follow that path and then you start building your momentum and then you're good to go for, for, for a long period of time. So the momentum of a business is some of the momentum of the people in it. Pointing in a particular direction, doing the same thing over and over again, driving home the same way, sitting in the same desk, talking to the same people, you know following routine after day after day that builds this crazy momentum that, of course, becomes very efficient, but it's very difficult to innovate, look sideways, reinvent yourself, et cetera. So the danger is clear. I always say to investors as well, it's really funny, I talk to people, I want to say, no, but I invest in the team. And I said, I get it, but the moment you invest, the team will double, and all of a sudden, some of those behaviors will change. So the culture that you think you're investing in is not the culture that actually you are investing in because your money will make that company grow. And the moment it grows, that's why I put a lot of effort into culture and, and team building and you know those kind of values in my mentorship. Because I say to people, don't underestimate that your money as an investor is actually what's going to make the very thing that you saw change. So be careful, right? And Don't underestimate the importance of that.
0: What else do you often find yourself talking about in your keynotes?
1: You know, the only thing, no, I always, you know, it's one of the recurring bits of feedback I give to, to young people. I mean, to any age, to be honest, we've been getting a lot of middle-aged people, 40, 50 years old coming over to try the hand of startups. But it's always the concept of making sure that they set up their own success metric and they never let anybody else set it up. The reason why I say that, David, it's really powerful is because we kind of learn, you know, from young age to let our parents set success for us and friends and uh, and eventually, Instagram and Facebook and everybody else—you know—external to it's almost as we outsource the metric of success to somebody else. And I say to people, "God damn, don't give it away. It is yours to own, and you can change it whenever you fucking want. Like literally, don't give it away. Because if you do, you create this gap of which somebody else sets the metric for you, and then you're chasing it down. You know, in a in an unhappy space. So don't. And I mean, I'm not saying that we need to talk about it, but. It is one of the recurrent things that I say to people when they start this journey. I say, make sure the success is something that you own and it's directly related to your own capability, skills, and
0: desires, not anybody else's, right? Some great lessons. And I, I'm guessing we could probably find, if we if we looked uh, online, a, a keynote or two you've delivered, and maybe we'll find a link to it if so and put it in the show notes because my guess is people are going to furiously be looking to find uh, more content from you. So.
1: Oh, gosh, I'm, you know, I, I thought I was going to finish writing my book during this time of, of lockdown here in Melbourne. Uh, and oh, gosh, I find the opposite. I'm like, great, I'm going to have time. I'll sit back. I'm not on a plane anymore. I'm not you know desperately getting from one place to another. And uh, anyway, I haven't been able to get my hands on that. But I will eventually finish that and, and, and get various lessons out into the world of-
0: Awesome. I want to switch to uh, what we call rapid fire, which I'm, I'm going to try to ask you some questions. If you have a quick answer, maybe 30 seconds or less on each one, uh, it's great. We'll, we'll get packed a lot into it to sort of wrap up as our tradition. You maybe have a place in the world with all your travels that you think everybody needs to visit before they're done. Where would that be?
1: Ah, oh, God, I love everywhere in the world. Uh, quickly, let me scan in my brain. I think everyone should definitely go and visit La Paz in Bolivia. It's a gorgeous, gorgeous town in in the Andes, and it's got some incredible history and some really uh, amazing landscapes that will be a surprise
0: to most people that will go visit. I love when guests give one that I've never been to, so I get to add to my list. (laughs) Uh, You mentioned a a few books earlier, but any book that you've read recently uh, that you think everybody should check out that's an entrepreneur?
1: Uh, Lots of them. A book called Other Minds by Peter Godfrey Smith only because I'm just so into neuroscience and the way our brains work and just trying to understand that kind of stuff. A book called Behave by Robert Sapolsky, just the biology of humans and how we come to decide and make decisions. I always tell people as well, I always advise to read things that you don't agree with as well. So I tend to read books of authors that kind of annoy me in some way, shape or form, not because I disagree with everything they say, but with some things. But I do it on purpose just to keep my brain. So for example, I read Skin in the Game by Nassim Taleb the other day and uh, <laughs> half of the book annoyed shit me, but I read it anyway. But some of the stuff is brilliant, right? The guy's obviously a brilliant mind, but some of the bits annoying me. But uh,
0: what else? I thought you were going to mention Do More Faster, and I'm glad you didn't, because that, that'd probably annoy you if you read that. Which one? It's Do More Faster by Brad Feld and David Cohen. Very annoying book. I
1: would <laughs> <right>? <laughs> but actually, I'll go find it and pick it up and, and have a good read as well. Another one that is really cool is called This Idea is Brilliant by John Brockman. Cool book, lots of ideas, rapid fire, one after the other. Really, really cool.
0: That's great. I have a question that came in from uh, the audience. Uh, Who do you think would win and by what score in a tennis match between Gus and David Cohen?
1: (laughs) Oh, God. Uh, I don't know, David, because I don't know how much tennis have you played. I used to play when I was young a lot of tennis, but but then I realized that I wasn't cut for it. for, For a minute there, I thought I could have a tennis career. There you go.
0: Same boat, played in college and then quit for 10 years and now I play for fun, but uh, so I'm really looking forward to getting back to Melbourne. David,
1: okay, I reckon you'll you win there because if you play regularly at the moment, you'll beat me because at the moment I'm not doing much of that. I'm doing more surfing than anything right,
0: there you have your answer. There you go. Uh, direct from Gus, he's conceding uh, before we even play. <laughs> just that, that's a mind trick of tennis players, just so everyone knows uh, that's how this works. Gus, just want to say a huge thank you to you, not, not only for joining the show, but for your part in helping bring Techstars to Melbourne, uh, for everything you do for the startup community uh, there and, and around the world. Uh, it's noticed, it's appreciated. Uh, we see you giving first and, and just want to thank you for being on the show as well.
1: Thanks, David, really appreciate it. And thank you for having me here and yeah, for doing the, the amazing work I think we all need, which is encouraging these great startups and entrepreneurs to, uh, to succeed. I think it's great.
0: Thanks, Gus. Thanks a lot for listening to the show today. We'd love to hear your feedback, ideas, or who you'd like to hear next on Give First. And please leave a rating and review, ideally a good one. And reach out anytime to podcasts at techstars.com or on Twitter, I'm at David Cohen. See you next time. Don't forget, give first.